Hey fellow travelers, this is Monty. Welcome to episode number 13. I hope you are ready. We are fast approaching the Easter season right here and uh, right now. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, Holy Week for me, one is a crazy busy week. But it's also one of the most powerful weeks of the whole year. So much is happening. Uh, if you've never visited uh, Snoqualmie Valley Alliance Church, uh, this week, uh, we've in fact, we have been in a preparation for a long season right now. We've been in Lent. And Lent is really the season that God gives us in the church here to help us get ready to experience resurrection. In, in many ways, Lent is about a dying um, a dying to yourself, dying to things, uh, a removal of the things that disconnect us from God and all that he has for us. Because, you know, you can't really experience resurrection until you have died. So this season, we are getting ready to experience resurrection. And so we also have some amazing, amazing events that happen during Holy Week at uh, SVA. Uh, one is we do a Passover Seder meal on Thursday night of Holy Week. We'll teach you to sing some Hebrew. We will enter into the last meal that Jesus shared with his followers in the upper room. The next night on Good Friday, it's a little more reflective and introspective, a little darker tone time as we, we look at the cross and then we move into what's called Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is like the waiting room of life. It's the day when everyone thought the bottom fell out. Jesus had died. Everything had been turned upside down. They, was he not who he said he was? And so there's that dismay and disorientation and chaos and confusion and disruption and tears and agony and gut punch on that Saturday. So we wait and then on Sunday morning, we come out of darkness and we enter into resurrection light. So really excited for that season that is coming up. Okay, are you with me? So when hashtag MeToo and Church2 came out, uh, there was a letter that Beth Moore uh, sent out, which is a great, great letter of her sharing some of her journey as a female Bible teacher in the world and how hard it was and how she has really had to navigate that that really male-dominated world uh, very carefully. So she wrote a letter to her brothers. I just wanted to read a couple pieces out of it to set the tone for our conversation today. She had wrote that as a woman leader in the conservative evangelical world, I learned early to show constant pronounced deference not just proper respect, which I was glad to show, to male leaders, and when placed in situations to serve alongside them, to do so apologetically. Wow. <laughs> I issued disclaimers ad nauseum. I wore flats instead of heels when I knew I'd be serving alongside a man of shorter stature so I wouldn't be taller than he. I've ridden in elevators in hotels packed with fellow leaders who were serving at the same event and not been spoken to, and even more awkwardly, in the same vehicles where I was never acknowledged. That is just insane. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't have to worry about the size of my shoes, which, you know, do I have to be shorter to speak with this person or what should I wear? Or how do I make sure I don't, you know, overshadow someone else? But females in this sphere have to deal with these thoughts and these realities every single day. And then to not even be acknowledged by the people that you're on the platform with, specifically because you're a woman. It's it's ludicrous. It, you know, it's just wrong. Uh, she uh, she continues um, she continues on in her letter. She said, "I've been in team meetings where I was either ignored or made fun of. The latter of which I was expected to simply understand was all in good fun. I am a laugher. I can take jokes and make jokes. I know good fun when I'm having it, and I also know when I'm being dismissed and ridiculed." I was the elephant in the room with a skirt on. I've been talked down to by male seminary students and held my tongue when I wanted to say, <laughs> Brother, 
I was getting up before dawn to pray and to pour over the scriptures when you were still in your pull-ups. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, the irony is that many of the men who will give consideration to my concerns do not possess a, a wit of the misogyny coming under the spotlight. For all the times you've spoken up on our behalf and for the compassion you've shown in response to me too, please know you have won our love and our gratitude and our respect. She beautifully articulates uh, you know, her, her journey in this particular world. In her concluding thoughts, she simply states, I'm asking for your increased awareness of some of the skewed attitudes many of your sisters encounter. Many churches quick to teach submission are often slow to point out that women were also among the followers of Christ, Luke 8, that the first recorded word out of his resurrected mouth was woman, that's John 20, 15, and that same woman was the first evangelist. Many churches wholly devoted to teaching the household codes are slow to also point out the numerous women with whom the Apostle Paul served and for whom he possessed obvious esteem. We are fully capable of grappling with the tension the two spectrums create, and we must if we're truly devoted to the whole counsel of the Word of God. Finally, I'm asking that you would simply have no tolerance for misogyny and dismissiveness towards women in your spheres of influence. I'm asking for your deliberate and clearly conveyed influence toward the imitation of Christ in his attitude and actions towards women. I'm also asking for forgiveness, both from my sisters and my brothers. My acquiescence and silence made me complicit in, the perpetuating, in perpetuating an atmosphere in which a damaging relational dynamic has flourished. I want to be a good sister to both genders. Every paragraph in this letter is toward that goal. And I believe she did it uh, with great integrity and with great, great character. So after determining that patriarchy was really a part of the curse, and we read about in Genesis chapter 3, that God says to, uh, to Eve, because, uh, because of the sin that has entered in the world, that uh, your pain and childbearing will be increased and your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So that embeds in our culture, and it starts this patriarchal worldview, which we are a part of. We don't tend to understand it. We have just always seen it as it just simply is, rather than, oh, that was a result of the brokenness. It wasn't God's intent. It wasn't God's design. It wasn't God's plan. That was a consequence of the fall. And of course, we know that Jesus has freed us and redeemed us from the consequences of the fall. So moving on from Eve, one of the next women that we see that God uses powerfully in the scriptures is Moses' sister. Her name is Miriam. Now her story's short, so there's not a lot, but what we really see in Miriam's life is that she operated in kind of a um, in an executive leader role alongside her two brothers, Moses and her other brother, Aaron. What's interesting is the prophet Micah in chapter, four, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, uh, noted something about God's gift to the people of Israel when he delivered them out of Egypt. And he says this, he says, I brought you up out of Egypt. And I redeemed you from the land of slavery. So God is speaking through his prophet, and he's reminding the Israelites that I was the one who, who, who delivered you out of bondage into freedom. I took you from darkness into light. I, I took you from the slavery of Egypt, and I moved you towards the freedom of the promised land, that land that was flowing with milk and honey. So he says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Then he says, I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. So the prophet Micah, as he's, as he's relaying God's word, he says, you know, I delivered you and I sent three people to lead you. Moses was one, Aaron was another, and Miriam 
was a third. So Miriam, the, we know, is she was a worship leader. She was a prophet. Uh, in fact, in Exodus 15, as they exit the, uh, the sea that had been split, the whole community sings this powerful song of deliverance. Starts with, you know, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown both horse and rider into the sea. In other words, our God is the God of deliverance. Our God stands in solidarity with us. And the whole tribe is singing at the end of that song, it says, Then Miriam the prophet, in verse 20, Miriam the prophet, who was Aaron's sister, also Moses' sister, grabs a tambourine and she begins to lead all the women in rhythm and in dance. And then Miriam sang this song, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown both horse and rider into the sea. So we are leading and we are singing. And we read later where Aaron and Miriam are posting up Moses on some decisions and saying, hey, Moses, remember that the Lord doesn't only speak through you, but he speaks through us too. Now, as you flip forward a little more to the book of Judges, we, we come into chapter uh, chapter 4 and we run into the the fourth judge and the fourth judge and prophet of Israel in the time of the judges was a woman and she was married it wasn't her husband who was the judge and the prophet it was the woman Deborah she was the one who had been called and appointed. She had the gifts and abilities as a mediator. She was an amazing advisor and a counselor. She was a writer of songs. And uh, you know what? God raises up his leaders. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, we read that after Ehud's death, Ehud, by the way, for you trivia folks, was the only left-handed judge in Israel. Um, after Ehud's death, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to King Yabin of Hazor, who was a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in the Harasheth Hagium. Sisera, who had 900, uh, 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. There's this cycle in the book of Judges, which is actually kind of cool. We, we call it the, the sin cycle. It's like God delivers his people, they have peace, and then they forget. Of course, we never do that, right? But then his people forget, and uh, then they, they start to consider other gods. They turn their back on, on, on Yahweh, so God allows them to experience their choices, which leads to uh, a neighboring nation oppressing them, and it gets so bad that they finally cry out. They had you know, they confess their sin, they admit their wrongdoing, and, and that they've turned from the Lord, and they cry out for, for deliverance, and then God will raise up a deliverer, and the deliverer was a judge. And so, in chapter 4, the judge that he raises up in this instance is a woman. Deborah, verse 4, the wife of Lapidoth was a prophet who had become judge in Israel. She would hold court under the palm of Deborah, which stood between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. So God appoints a woman to be the judge over Israel, not because there wasn't a capable man, but because he chose Deborah. And it says that she holds court, which means she has a public office, and where she would hold court, she would determine and judge people's cases. So it was a public ministry as well. I just throw that in because some people try to look at every female leader in the Old Testament and say, oh, it was a private ministry, and they were, they were just wrong on that point. One day she sent for uh, Barak, the son of Abinom, who lived in Kedesh in the land of Naphtali, and she said to him, um, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Assemble 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. 
Al-Lur Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River, and there I will give you victory over him. So Deborah, as the judge, calls a, a military commander, says, here's what, here's what we're going to do. Here's what I want you to do. And Barak told her <laughs> in verse, verse 8, yeah, I'll go, but only if you go with me. That's amazing. So this strong military leader, Barak, he, uh, he's capable because he's going to do it. But he says, yeah, I'll do it, but only if you go with me. Well, Deborah says, very well, I'll go with you. But since you've made this choice, you're going to receive no honor for it. For the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak and Kedesh. At Kedesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors marched up with him, and Deborah marched also. So we have, uh, in, even in this instance, God has called Deborah to lead, even as she's delegating other, other military commands to a guy, they're like, ah, we don't want to do it without you, because obviously there was something about the leadership and the stature and the power and the calling of Deborah, that in this patriarchally entrenched world, they still said, no, that's who God has appointed. So we have Miriam with leadership in her own words in scripture. We have Deborah divinely installed as a judge over all of Israel, not just the women and the kids, but over all of Israel, the men, the women, everyone as judge. And now she is really leading the conquest. So you just have to ask yourself even to hear, is God breaking his own rules? And then we hit chapter 5, and it's the song uh, of Deborah that it says, uh, verse 1, On that day Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song, and they go into this, this beautiful song. When Israel's leaders take charge and the people gladly follow, bless the Lord. Listen, you kings, and pay attention, you mighty rulers, for I will sing to the Lord. I will lift up my song to the Lord, the God of Israel. And it goes on, and it builds and it's celebrative and it's powerful and it honors the God of Israel. Now, when you have her song in the text and you have Miriam's words in the text, Holy Spirit has chosen to place them in the scriptures, which gives them authority. And the authority of those women's words are for everyone who reads that inspired book we call the Bible. So any male reading the Bible, as you read those words, you are submitting to the authority of the woman who God inspired to write the words that the Holy Spirit made sure made it into the Bible. Now in chapter five, there it's, it's a little less, but it's how another woman shows up and kind of saves the day. Uh, Deborah and Barak have Sisera, they have Sisera on, on the run and then as, as he's on the run, we run into this other gal. Her name is Yehel. Um, and verse 24 of Judges 5 says, Most blessed is Yehel, the wife of Heber the Kenite. May she be blessed above all women who live in tents. Sisera asked for water, and Yehel gave him milk. In a bowl fit for kings, she brought him yogurt. All right, so Sisera is on the run. Are you catching this? Sisera is on the run, and he finds a tent, and it was expected, particularly with his, his stature, that he would be taken care of. He goes into the tent, and it happens to be Yale's tent. He asks for water. She gives him milk. And she not only gives him milk, but she brings it out in this bowl that is fit for a king. And she brings him yogurt too. She gives him more than he asks. And as he is reclining, probably falling asleep from his, his desperate run away from Deborah, it says, then with her left hand, she reached for a tent peg and with her right hand, she reached for the workman's hammer. She hit Sisera, crushing his head. She pounded the tent peg through his head, piercing his temples. He sank. He fell 
he lay dead at her feet. So this leader, Sisera, who is just taking Israel to the woodshed, gets taken down by a woman, Yale. And then again, really quickly in, in Judges 9, isn't this just so good? In Judges 9, verses 53, I just call her Mrs. Smith because she uh, she actually doesn't have a name in the text. But uh, I'll start in verse 50. It says, Then Abimelech attacked the city of Thevez and captured it. But there was a strong tower inside the city, and the entire population fled to it. They barricaded themselves in and climbed up to the roof of the tower. Abimelech followed them to attack the tower, but as he prepared to set fire to the entrance, a woman on the roof threw down a millstone that landed on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Now this is now just listen to this next these next verses. The guy says his skull is crushed, blood is pouring. His knees buckled. He's probably puking on the ground. But he said to his young armor bearer, Quick, draw your sword and kill me. Don't let it be said that a woman killed Abimelech. <laughs> He's like, the guy's going to die out, but he doesn't want anyone to know. So he wants his armor bearer to put a sword in him so it looks like he died in battle. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to think that a woman actually killed him. So guess what? His armor bearer did that. All right. So right there, are you seeing how entrenched patriarchy was here? From the pre-fall, Adam and Eve, it was co-equal. There was no hierarchy. The hierarchy happened in Genesis chapter 3. After Genesis chapter 3, we have a patriarchal worldview where men are on top and women are on the bottom. Literally, women were, were treated inhumanely. They were abused. Uh, they were traded. They were sold because they had no value. So they were considered personal property of a man. But all of a sudden, as God tells his story, he reminds us, I am always one step ahead of the spiritual consciousness of the culture at any given time. So he starts embedding these new ideas. He embeds it with Miriam, that there is a co-leader with Moses and his brother Aaron, that there are three leaders, and one of them is a woman. We come into the book of Judges, Chapter 4 with Deborah, God's embedding this idea. Guess what? I am calling and I am empowering a woman to lead the nation. And guess what? I'm also going to use a woman to defeat the enemy that is giving my people so much agony. And then another woman in a later chapter, the same thing. But the guy says, kill me. Because I don't want anyone to know that a woman did this to me. We could look at the entire book of Esther. I would really encourage you to read that. That is a book of how God supernaturally and uh, purposely places a Jewish woman into the opposing army's court. If you know the story, the king, the ruler of Xerxes, he holds a beauty pageant <laughs> to choose a wife, and he ends up choosing Esther. It's a great and crazy and chaotic and dark story to read. <laughs> Esther becomes a queen, and there's a servant in Xerxes' court whose name is Haman, and Haman has a run-in with this man named Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai refuses to bow down to anything but his own God, and that includes Haman. Haman as really a number two position in the court. He doesn't like it, and he starts to devise a plan to exterminate, to destroy, and to annihilate all of the Jewish people because of Mordecai. Well, a couple interesting pieces here that you pick up. Well, Mordecai happens to be the uncle to Esther, who's a Jew. Now, 
Xerxes may not know. In fact, he doesn't really know that Esther is a Jew. So this story just unfolds of plot after plot. And God uses Esther to save the day and to save the nation from the gallows of the evil Haman. I would really encourage you to to look at that. We have uh, early in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, the empowerment of Eve. We see in Exodus, the empowerment of Miriam. We see in Judges, the empowerment of Deborah and a couple other women. The entire book of Esther, we see the empowerment, the choosing, the calling, and how God used a woman to save men and women in the nation of Israel. But one last name I just want to leave you with to consider um, is a, a woman who was a, uh, also a prophet, and her name was Huldah. The Huldah's story shows up in 2 Kings chapter 22, 8-20, and also reiterated again in 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1-28. to The same story is repeated uh, in both of these narratives. But in, 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 in these stories, Josiah is now the king of Judah, and he's a good king. And he is, he is coming in after there had been some bad kings. You know, you run across that a lot in the Old Testament. You know, this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and when you have a good king, you pay attention, right? So Josiah, he is one of these good kings. And he has just been told that the scroll of the law, or Torah, the scroll of Torah has been rediscovered after it had been forgotten and neglected for a really, really long time. So as he comes back on the scene, can you picture it? It's like no one, no one's listening to the Lord. No one's trying to follow the ways of Yahweh. No one's, no one's hearing Torah read to them. This is no longer the centerpiece. Uh, but with Josiah, he comes to the throne. His heart is different. God acknowledges that, and Torah is rediscovered, and there's a guy, his name is Shaphan, that's kind of a Shaphan, <laughs> Shaphan, it's kind of a cool name, that's, it's Josiah's secretary, and he reads Torah to him, ah, and Josiah, as he's hearing it, it hits his heart, He's remorseful. His heart breaks because he realizes the nation has not been following God at all. So what he does is he commissions a group of, uh, of leaders, execs, uh, with the charge to go to the temple and ask the Lord on my behalf and on behalf of all of the people of Judah concerning the contents of of this scroll that has been found. He's like, oh, this is so big. So he rallies his top guys, right? And he sends them to the temple to go and say, I need you guys to get someone to speak to me from the voice of the Lord. So he's, he's going to look for a prophet. This isn't a minor task. This isn't a little thing. He is asking for God's guidance for the sake of Israel. And so reflecting on the importance of the mission, um, Josiah sends his most trusted people. Um, this, uh, with that many people going, it, that tells us something. Uh, Linda uh, Belleville, scholar, noted that the size and the prestige of the embassy that sought her counsel indicates something about not only the seriousness of the situation, but also hold this professional stature. The high priest... Hilkiah, the father of the future governor, Achikim, the son of a prophet, Achbor, the secretary of state, Shaphan, and the king's officer, Asaiah. Those were the five men who were named. Now, what's, now, this is just interesting to know. So these five guys go to the temple and they decide we are going to, um, we are going to find Holda. In fact, let me, uh, I'm going to jump over to the Second Chronicles version. It's the same just because that's what I have open also right now. So it says, so Hilkiah and the other men went to the, the newer Mishnah section of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Huldah. 
She was the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, and the grandson of Haras, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. She said to them, The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go and tell the man who sent you, a.k.a. Josiah the king, this is the Lord, the God of Israel, that has spoken. And so go and, tell, go and tell him this. This is what the Lord says. I will certainly destroy this city and its people. All the curses written in the scroll you have read will come true. For the people of Judah have abandoned me and worshipped pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will be poured out against this place, and nothing will be able to stop it. So they go, and they get the word. She delivers the word. She becomes the counselor and the prophet to the king. But just something to notice is that there were two other prophets at that time who were in Jerusalem, or at least in the nearby town of uh, Anathoth. And those two prophets were the prophet Jeremiah and Zephaniah. And let's pause on that for a moment. So that is just fascinating to me. Josiah sends his delegation, and they immediately go to Huldah. When they could have gone to Jeremiah, that's, that's, that's something to pause on. Uh, scholar uh, Krista McKirkland suggests that the fact that they immediately sought Huldah would seem to indicate one of two possibilities. Either Josiah's default prophet was Huldah, and the dignitaries already knew this, or Huldah was not the king's default prophet, but she was the obvious choice for the five dignitaries for whatever reason. Yeah, these, these men then speak on behalf of the king and the nation, and Huldah speaks on behalf of the Lord. Uh, Walter Kaiser wrote that Huldah held nothing back as she declared three times over, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Her exposition of a half a dozen more texts from Deuteronomy 29, 20, uh, verses 20, 23, 25, 26, 28, and 29 thundered against Judah and her king, Josiah. So the men return, they deliver the message to the king, and he accepts it. That is a profound story. And so we see all of these different women who God has appointed and God has called and God used. So that leaves us then with the question, right? So if God is against women being in leadership, is he breaking his old rules in the Tanakh or the Old Testament? I think the obvious answer is no, God can't break his own rules. So that means there's something else at work here. And maybe, just maybe, God is upstream in this, having implanted ideas of where he's going to ultimately go in oneness, neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, but his concept is oneness and unity, gift-based humans serving the king of the universe. Are you with me on that? Well, hey, let's... um. I'm going to pull this conversation to a close with just a few takeaways, a few big ideas about, you know, was God breaking his own rules by putting women in leadership in the Old Testament? Just some takeaways for us. Building this off the first podcast when we were looking at patriarchy isn't God's dream. Now we begin to see that God has been working, even within a patriarchal culture, so you know, one thought that we need to re- one thought that we need to remember in everything uh, biblical is that God tolerates a lot of things that are far from ideal or far from what His ultimate desire is in order to transform us, and and not only to transform us but to trans transform the world uh, through us. I mean, let's think about His His ideal for relationships. You know, is monogamy loving, committed relationship uh, between two people. But if you look through the Old Testament, you see over and over a polygamous 
ideal. Now, God's plan wasn't for polygamy. Uh, we could have a whole nother podcast just on that. Polygamy is a result of patriarchy. The guy's in charge. He can have as many women as he wants because they aren't considered equal and they are less than and they are considered personal prop, uh, property. His goal is monogamy, but he works where with us right where we're at. And I appreciate that about the way God will even subordinate some of his will to us because he's not forcing us into anything. So while his ideal might have been monogamy, we see that he worked in so many polygamous cultures in order to transform them. Uh, same thing with slavery. We see slavery in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. We see it in the, the New Testament writings. But we know that freedom for everyone uh, is God's plan, his overarching arc. So he puts up, or another way, is that he tolerates just a lack of spiritual consciousness in a culture until he can get that new idea implanted in people moving towards it. So yes, I am also going to say on this conversation about women, God implanted a new idea a long time ago, and he has tolerated our cultures dealing with a patriarchal worldview, which demeans women and makes them less than. When I would say his ultimate goal, we begin seeing seated more powerfully by Jesus and Paul in the New Testament, but let alone he's raising up women in leadership in the Old Testament, which is just really unheard of. But now Jesus has women on his team, and Paul says, you know what? Galatians 3.28, there's neither male nor female. And he's saying there's no more of this ethnicity division, either Greek nor Jew. And he's dealing with slavery. There's neither slave nor free. The gospel, when it touches down, it changes everything about our relationships. So why aren't we letting it change our relationships with women? So, you know, just to recap one thing is, so to remember, there are many statements incorporated in, uh, in the Old Testament and many words of women that are incorporated into the inspired, authoritative Word of God. So, as the Word of God has authority over all believers, male and female, remember uh, that then those passages by women have authority over men too. Uh, in Genesis, women were given the exact same command to rule over creation that men are. So, Adam and Eve have the same command. So you know, he says, so God created humankind in his image, male and female. He created them. Ish and Isha, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue the earth. That is so good. They are given the same command. He didn't say, Adam, you're in charge. You subdue the earth. Eve, be his helper subduing it. Now, the charge is given to both of them. We mentioned uh, Miriam earlier. Deborah alone should be enough to end this, this whole argument. <laughs> uh, and we also have, we've looked at Holda. So as we, we come to the end of this podcast, then the, the question is, or really the, the thing to, to, to fathom is, God either breaks his own rules, and he's inconsistent, which would lead us to say if God is inconsistent and he breaks his own rules, then we might as well break his own rules. And that was where you really have to go if you're going to hold a hard complementarian line on the role of women. But if God didn't break his own rules, if he has been trying to move us away from our rules so that we become more and more in line with him, then this whole conversation starts to make more sense. And so again, even at the end of this podcast, to all the women who have felt called and been giving, given gifts uh, of ministry and service and leadership, and you have found that the place where you expected those gifts to be unleashed was the place where they were stifled and you were hurt and wounded, I am so sorry. I believe the Spirit is waking people up, <laughs> and more and more people who have uh, fought 
vehemently for the patriarchal view are starting to realize that they have made a mistake. So we've been slow, but I think it is beginning to shift. So thanks for hanging in with me today as we've looked at was God breaking his own rules about women in the Old Testament. And uh, the next we're going to be looking at, so was Jesus breaking God's rule with the way he empowered women. That will be on the podcast for next week. So I invite you to join me as we dig into that conversation. It's going to be another good one. Also, don't forget you can find me on Facebook at MC Wright. You can follow me on Twitter at MCWright and on uh, Instagram at MCWright. I hope you have an amazing week and remember to empower the women who are in your lives today. <laughs> <laughs>